Okay, this is not a joke, but uh, one, one time I was preaching and someone literally picked up and they're like, I'm in church, I can't talk right now. And I'm like, well, then why did you pick up in the first place? Anyways, that aside, we should have a sign. Turn your phones off, please. But anyways, I, uh, good morning. How are you doing? Uh, I'm glad to be the one preaching this morning. If I, you think I sound funny, it's not your ears, it's me. Uh, unfortunately, yesterday I sounded like Barry White. Friday I couldn't talk at all. I'm not sure which was better. But uh, this is kind of somewhere in between. Uh, but uh, I won't be giving out any holy kisses, so don't worry, okay? Uh, I, I had to get sick like eight days out from going to Africa, you know? And so I'm, those of you who are prayers, pray because I got to get over this. So anyways, I'm getting better. I just sound terrible. Uh, but I want to ask you a question. When you buy something new, are you the type of person who before you start playing with it, or maybe it's a new car driving it, the first thing you do, you go to the manual and you start reading up, maybe it's a car, it's the maintenance schedule. So you schedule in your, fa- in your calendar, this is where you got to do what? You start figuring out all the features by reading the manual, or are you the person that goes, starts driving the car, starts opening the Ikea and starts putting it all together, and you just go to the instructions after you've already messed up and you're beyond help. What kind of person are you? I, I, admittedly, I'm an instructions guy. Sometimes I actually like reading the instructions and figuring that out more than even the thing that I'm doing. Uh, and my wife is, is one of the people that maybe she just starts figuring things out by doing. And one time I, I was really excited. She, we bought a, a new-to-us vehicle. It's like eight years old. That's usually what we do, older. But it, it's new. Um, anyways, and I figured out there's this cool feature. You can, like, store CDs in it. Yes, our vehicle still has CDs. Uh, and I, I thought it was this exciting thing I was going to share with my wife. She's like, yeah, I know. I figured that out, like, six months ago. It's her van, not mine, so anyways, but but I like going to the instructions, and I actually even like, uh, sometimes I do so much research ahead of time that I know and figure out the different models before I even get it, and then I get excited about the features, and then I get the thing, and I'm like, yeah, it's fine, whatever. But uh, whether you guys do it correctly like I do, or differently, that's, that's fine. Whatever, whatever is good for you guys. But in this morning's passage in Ephesians, Paul is taking us back to the fundamental instructions of our Christian faith. He brings us back to the manual where we should start and return to time and time again. Paul reminds his readers how they began their faith and what faith is all about. And then from there, he goes on to explain how this can be applied to those of us who are followers of Jesus. So this morning, we're going to see three essential parts of our faith. We'll see the meaning of our call to follow Jesus. We'll see the grace which has equipped us to play our part in the church. And we'll see the unity that we have in Christ, but that we must work to guard. So let's dive into our passage for this morning. We're going to be reading from Ephesians 4, 1 to 16. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation, but if you have your own hard copy or iBible with your preferred translation, that's great. Uh, Track along with your Bible either in front of you or on the screen behind me. All right, so Ephesians 4, uh, verses 1 to 16. Therefore I, that's Paul speaking, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Okay, I just want to pause here for a second to point out a couple important things that are just in this verse before moving on to the rest of the passage. First of all, you need to remember that Paul is writing this from a prison cell and his state of physical imprisonment, and yet he's still talking about a place, he's having a place of spiritual freedom. He knows that even his time in prison is a time of serving the Lord. So he's not saying, 
We serve the Lord when, when we're out and, and free. He says, no, you can serve the Lord. You can use your gifts anytime. Secondly, and this is my nerd moment for this morning, my one and only, I hope, uh, anytime when you're reading the Bible, especially Paul's writings, and you see the word therefore, it is there for a reason. And what, what Paul is saying in that one word is basically, because of everything I wrote up till this point, this is what we do about it. So for Ephesians 4, that he starts, therefore, he's saying everything up until the first three chapters. So he's basically saying, because of those three chapters, this is what we do. Okay, so anytime you're reading Paul, you see therefore, think, okay, what did I just read? Okay, now this is what I actually do about it. Okay, continuing on. He says, always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowances for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. However, he has given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. That is why the scriptures say, when he, that's Jesus, ascended to the heights, he led a crowd of captives and gave gifts to his people. Notice it says he ascended. This clearly means that Christ also descended to our lowly world. At this, and the same one who descended is the one who ascended higher than all the heavens so that he might fill the entire universe with himself. Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind and new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow, so the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. God bless the reading of his word. All right, there is a lot to unpack in this rich passage, and I, could, I literally could preach probably four sermons on it, so you guys, I hope you guys brought snacks or something. Um, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of be focusing on the, the things I've already said, uh, but with the understanding that Paul is bringing us back to the fundamentals of faith. He's bringing us back to the, the, the richness of our calling. He tells the meaning of our call to follow Jesus. He says, we are to lead a life worthy of our calling in Jesus. So what, is that, what does that life look like? Well, he gives us a few key indicators how to live, but remember that he's establishing a foundation. So something that is key to remember, first of all, is that obedience is a response to grace. So he's saying these things that we are called to do, these things that these behaviors, these indicators of, a following, of followers of Jesus, they are a response to the grace that God has already given us. Because of everything else that we've already covered in the first three chapters of Ephesians, like the last time I preached, that we were dead in our sin, but we are called to life in Jesus. Because God has called us out of that, because God has given us grace, 
that our obedience comes from that place. So it's not that we earn our salvation by doing things. We do these things. We live this life of a calling because of the grace we've already received. That's the therefore that Paul is talking about. God acts first, and then we respond. And so that's what those whole first chapters are about. So that he reminds us we've been saved by, and now we live by grace. It's a gift. It's never about earning God's love. We already have it, therefore we act on it. So from the place of acceptance, we fill out our calling. So our calling involves a way of living the kingdom ethic. We live a life like Jesus lives. All ethics are intrinsically motivated. All ethics, the way that you choose to live and choose to act, are all internal. And yet, uh, even people doing the same actions could do them for different reasons. So the question would be, why do we do the things that we do and not do other things? So you could do stealing, for example. Why do, why do we not steal? Do we not steal because we're afraid of the police catching us? Do we not steal because it hurts other people? Or do we not steal because it's against God's moral law and we're, we're scared of punishment? No, as Christians, it's, it's none of those things. As Christians, it's because we have, we have been receivers of grace, and so we choose to show love because God loves us. So because we are full of grace, we show grace to other people. And so the, the why Christians act the way we do is what, what Paul is talking about. We are called to live up to our calling because we're loved and accepted as recipients of grace. We don't fear repercussions for our actions or earning a place with God. We recognize from the place of acceptance, we act and we live. So with the call as Christians comes the responsibility to act on our calling. So in the NLT, the, the translation lead a life in this language is actually one of action. And I prefer the way the, the uh, English standard version or uh, the extremely spiritual version, if you want to call it, that translates it. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And I like this because walking actually indicates action and movement and progress. Nobody walks by standing still. Nobody walks by, by just being there. The Christian walk is active. It involves movement. Everything that is done as a Christian in the action of love is outwardly directed. It's not about loving yourself. It's about loving other people. So love isn't this, this mere feeling, but it's an ethic, an action in which we display and show towards others. And when Paul here is talking about a calling, our calling as Christians, often we, uh, we kind of co-opted that uh, that idea of calling as being your vocation or maybe a calling to be a missionary or a calling to be a pastor. And those things are, are true and they're right, but every single person is called to be a follower of Jesus. And so the calling, the primary definition of calling is to be a follower of Jesus. Now what your vocation is, what your day job is, doesn't matter because if you're a follower of Jesus, that's your primary calling. You could do that in a variety of different ways. You could do that in whatever your vocation is. So Paul shows what the calling of a Christian looks like. And there are a few different key indicators. The first of which is humility. Humility is renouncing self-centeredness. It's having a proper understanding of yourself and others. So there, there would be extremes of this. We're neither worms that we're just in the dirt, that we're terrible, we're atrocious, that, that we need to just live and beat ourselves up, nor are we gods. We're not, we're not the center of the universe. No, instead we are in a relationship with God. And so there, there's an awareness of God that we are made in his image, that we, we are unique in all creation. So understanding and being aware of God 
So it, there's a balance to this. We understand our own sinfulness, our own depravity, our inclination to sin, and our hopeless estate outside of relationship with God. We have that tension, as well as the value that we have being image bearers of God. So recognize that apart from God, that, that we, we were uh, bent on destruction, and yet we have this unique place in, in the world, in all of God's creation, creation to be his image bearers, to be reflections of him and his glory. So we're meant, to be, uh, we're meant to live in this tension and to understand that that reality allows us to be humble. So we're meant to be great as God's image bearers, but often instead, we, we choose to relive the narrative of Genesis 3 over and over again where Adam and Eve chose to try and be their own gods. They said, we don't want to listen to God. We want to, to choose what's best for ourselves. And we re- relive this as humanity over and over again. And so humility is a lowliness of mind as a habit to be developed. So it's this idea of intentionally holding yourself not higher than other people or so low that, that you're just dirt or you're worthless. No, it's understanding that it's a choosing to, to place your others above yourself. So humility, it's, it's been said, is not thinking less of yourself that you're, that you're worthless. It's actually thinking about yourself less. So it's not, it's, it's instead of just saying, oh, I'm terrible, I'm dirt. No, it's just, it's not thinking about yourself. It's putting others' needs ahead of you. It's the very opposite of fighting for your own rights. It's instead fighting for others and denying yourself. Uh, I, I, one of the, the greatest pieces of advice I've ever heard for any relationship whatsoever, but it was specifically applied to marriage, but could apply to friendship, uh, relationships at work or anything, but the best way to have a good relationship is not to look at your own needs and, and then see your partner or your friend not fulfilling your needs and getting upset. Instead, it's to 100% be in trying to fulfill their needs, fulfill their desires, and if they're doing likewise, you're going to have a happy relationship. You're going to have a successful marriage. You're gonna have a successful friendship. But if at the same time, if instead you're looking at your own, your own needs, your own rights, your own wants, and the, then you're having these expectations on the other person to fulfill them for you and they're not, you're just constantly disappointed. So humility is, is a loneliness of mind as a habit of thinking of yourself less. All right. The second key indicator is this, gentleness. Gentleness is renouncing harshness and violence. And our culture actually sees gentleness as a sign of weakness. Uh, However, gentleness or the alternative meekness literally means power under control. So being gentle, being meek, or being humble and being gentle in the same time doesn't mean that you're, that you're weak. Being meek and, and being gentle for a week actually makes you realize how much strength it takes to be gentle, how much self-control, how much strength it takes, not to fight for your rights, not to, to react violently, not to react angrily when your rights are, are against. And uh, a great example of this is in medieval and the ancient world, war horses, they were powerfully trained animals. They were, they were basically weapons, but they were so well trained to protect their master that they were under complete control and that they were described as meek. That war horses would be gentle. They would seem like gentle, but they're this, this 2,000 pounds of just meat and flesh that's, that's trained for violence, and yet they would be gentle and humble towards their masters. They would be meek. Their strength was under total control. Moses, for example... 
He was described as one of the meekest men who ever lived, and yet he was powerful. He did great things for God. He did amazing miracles, and yet he was meek. And he was this great, dynamic, charismatic leader who challenged the power of the throne of Egypt, but his strength was under God's control. Okay, so we're called to be humble. We're called to be gentle. The third indicator is patience. Oh, this one's hard. (laughs) Patience is renouncing the tyranny of our own agendas. Patience is believing God's timetable is good, no matter what. No matter what that timetable is. Oh, Lord, this is a prayer for most of us. Oh, Lord, give me patience and hurry up about it. (laughs) Patience doesn't often come quickly. Patience is a characteristic Uh, of mature people. Oh, I'm not mature yet. I'll get there maybe. It takes time to develop as a habit through relationship with God and others. We have, when we have a proper expectation of others and of of God's timetable, it actually helps us to be patient. And when I was reading this week, I I came across this understanding of patience, which uh, was quite challenging for me. It was a lack of patience is a reflection of a narrowness of soul. And so patience, oh yeah, that hit some other people too. So we can, we can chat after and kind of commiserate and be like, man. But anyways, patience is a largeness that shows you value other people. It shows that you give them enough room and time to fail, to learn, and to develop. So patience, being patient with other people uh, is this, this depth of soul that obviously some of us are lacking sometimes. And as, as Paul states, Uh, He says, all of these are to make allowance for each other's faults because of your love. I love that understanding of patience, to make allowances for other people's faults. It's easy to be patient for somebody that's always on time, right? But maybe that person that maybe blows you off or they show up 20 minutes late all the time, it becomes more and more hard to be patient with them because we feel like maybe, maybe if a time is a big value of ours, that they're wasting our time, that they don't value us. So humility, gentleness, and patience, these are all aids to our relationship with others. And then they they lead towards what Paul is aiming for, which is our call to unity. Unity is this this funny thing, uh, especially when when we look at unity in churches. So when you look at the global church and you think about the global church, even the church here in North America, do you see a united church or do you see a divided church? Too often in church's history, unity has taken a backseat to minor theological differences. Somebody's definition of this one thing or this other thing. And uh, most denominational differences are based on minuscule minor theological differences and really matters of opinion towards theological differences and preference rather than core issues. There are so few uh, divides in the church in history. It's actually, it's sad when you read church history, just what the debates were over. And uh, over the many years, those differences in denominations and things like that have, have, uh, have really broken down, that they've, they've really kind of become tradition and preference more than anything. And often critics of the church actually uh, point towards different denominations of the church, and uh, they scoff and how much trouble we as the global church, as the church of Jesus, have trouble getting along with one another. And honestly, rightly so sometimes. Far too often we've wasted time squabbling rather than focusing on what truly matters. 
And the question would be, do we value our differences more than our unity in Christ? Now, I actually uh, am a little bit of a denominational mutt because I didn't grow up in the church, but my, my heart is definitely in the PAOC. It's Pentecostal Assemblies is, is where I align theologically. It's where I'm at. And so I'm not at all criticizing denominations, but the way I personally view denominations is it's, like, it's a little bit like a rainbow, which has been co-opted, so whatever. But basically, God is so big. And God has so many different facets of them. And a lot of the denominations, they focus on one kind of, one aspect of God's character or one aspect of the Bible or one aspect. And, and they, they kind of highlight that. And I, I, I can see and appreciate, and I don't think that one type of church would work for the whole world. If you even think about it culturally around the world, if people in the Philippines worshipped exactly like people in Penticton worshipped, it would probably be weird because we have different cultures. We have different ways of expressing ourselves. There are warm cultures, there are cold cultures. And so it's neither good nor bad. A lot of the differences are neither good nor bad. And so I think denominations are fine as long as we stick to the main thing, which is Jesus. Okay, and now a little bit of caveat. There is such a thing as heresy. There is such a thing as, as differences that do matter. So as long as the main things are the main things, I think that, that it, is, it is good to be united, but it's not unity at all costs. It's not unity no matter what. It's not unity, and it doesn't matter what you believe about. You could list so many different things. But as long as we have the main things, the main things, I think we can be united. And I think it's, it's amazing to see Jesus' name lifted high and his church built up and see people saved, whether it's in a Baptist church or a Reformed or a Catholic or Pentecostal or whatever. As long as God's name is glorified, as long as Jesus is at the center, as long as our core beliefs are absolutely biblical, then I think we're good. All right. And in verses four to six, you'll notice that Paul uses seven statements of one, which unites us all in Jesus. And these aren't the only core things, but these are, these are basic tenets of faith that basically everyone who is a Christian needs to follow. That is that we are one body. We have one spirit, the Holy Spirit. We have one hope for the future. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father for all. So there's these seven one statements that unite us all. And that's not to say unity at all costs. Heresy and falsehoods are still not tolerable. Paul does say that in the, the last section of this, this chapter, that there are some truths, some falsehoods that seem so close to the truth that people are deceived. There are people that are deceived. There are cults. There are, there are people that would say they're Christians, but they're, the gospel they preach is not the gospel of Jesus. And so unity, though, is not uniformity. Unity doesn't mean that we're completely the same. Uniformity would actually be false unity, where everyone is the same. And that's not the way the world or our bodies work, which is one of the metaphors that Paul transitions to in the, the last section here. Paul uses the, the metaphor as the church that we are a body. So he uses uh, that metaphor elsewhere uh, as well, but without diving too much into the metaphor, here's a few key ideas I wanted to kind of land on for that. One is that Christ is the head. Christ is absolutely the head of the body. He's, he's the boss. He is in charge. He's essential. He's where we get everything from. He leads us and guides us and sustains us. Without him, it all falls apart. There is no body. There is no church without Jesus. 
And secondly, a body doesn't work unless all of its parts function in unity. If a body is fighting itself and is divided, then it won't function the way it should. It won't function properly. And the, the idea of here that Paul talks about these gifts that we have, that we are all given gifts we are used to build each other up. And so these gifts must be used in order to, to build one another up, in order to, for the body to function properly. And so the characteristics are something that we are called to exhibit, the humility, gentleness, and patience. Those are things we are called to operate in as we walk with life with Jesus in relationship with other Christians so that we are unified. Now, in verses 11 to 12, Paul says, Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and to build up the church, the body of Christ. This is sometimes called the, the five-fold ministry. Uh, and there's church debates about this. There's division, and I don't want to get bogged down into it or have an in-depth debate about it, so I'm going to cut straight to the chase about it. However, I really love theological debates, and so if you have any questions about it, I would love to offer for you to talk to Pastor Jeremy about it anytime. <laughs> I, I just had to throw that in there, but, or me, okay, I'm the one preaching, but anyway. Uh, but I, I will give you a little bit of a hint on my own take on these titles, I honestly get super leery and a little worried when someone claims one of these titles for themselves. They come up to me and say, hey, this is my name and I'm an evangelist. Or, hey, this is my name and I'm a prophet. And I go, oh, just, just hold on there a second. Because uh, if somebody insists on a title, they insist on a prophet or evangelist or apostle or pastor, if they insist on the title, it might be an indicator that they're more about the perks of the title than, than about actually operating in the role of themselves. And sometimes the impression that, uh, that is given when we do that is that uh, these titles or these roles exist so that some people would be special or more special than other people. And honestly, there's certainly a role for each of these, church, or each of these roles. For example, Paul's own emphasis on his own apostleship, he, he fought for that, he debated it because he did have a special role in it. But uh, I'm sure he didn't go around introducing himself to brand new believers or brand new people being, hey, I'm the Apostle Paul. No, he probably went, I'm Paul, a tent maker. And then it would come up later as he, as he uh, would talk and, and do these things. But anyways, the, the, the opposite of, of, uh, of actually trying to lift ourselves up by the special title we have is actually the point of these titles is in verse 12. The point of them is for every Christian to be equipped for their own work of service. Sometimes in churches, we get this idea that we, we, hire, we hire staff, we hire people, and they're going to do the work of church. They're going to do things so that I can go to church and just enjoy and be ministered to. But that's not at all the, the concept. That's not at all what, what Paul is talking about. The whole point is that Paul, uh, Paul calls people, and Jesus calls people to roles of service and leadership so that others can be equipped to do the work of the ministry. Because the whole point is for people to be equipped and to use their own gifts. And so the whole point of, of Paul and other people in the New Testament when they're talking is that others are called so that Christians can, can uh, be equipped to do the work. So those who are called to leadership uh, in church 
are called to emulate Jesus as servant leaders, those who take leadership in order to raise up others, not to be served or honored or to serve others or honor others. And I appreciate working on a staff that is like that. None of us are up here, and I hope that, that you don't feel this, but none of us are up here going, you better call me Pastor Adrian. You better, you better you always use my title because I, I honestly don't care. I, I let people do it out of respect. It's a role that I fill, but uh, no one of us is better than anyone else. I hope that, that by our leadership, by, by our calling, that we would help you to fulfill your calling. That's the whole point of the find your fit, that, that uh, there are roles that, that are available and there are structures, but, but honestly, there's, there are so many more opportunities that we as a staff could even think of or dream of that maybe that God is calling you to do. There's, uh, there's a pastor in the States, I won't say what his name because he's defunct now, which unfortunately happens way too often. But he one time had a guy come up to him and he said, you know, pastor, you should really have this ministry. You should have this, this, this type of ministry, this kind of thing. And he said, well, honestly, none of us have ever thought about that before. So you should really pray about it. Maybe God is calling you to do that because you're seeing an issue that none of the rest of us have seen. And that guy went, what most people do, be like, well, I don't know about that. And he never brought it up again. But Maybe you see something. Maybe you, you see some area or some group or some need that isn't being fulfilled. Maybe God is calling you to do that. So talk to us. We'd love to help you and equip you and, and to be there to help cha- uh, champion you. Because the whole point of, of gifts and the calling as a church is to build each other up. The whole body needs to be built up and developed equally. Uh, like if a guy only works out his upper body and his chest, you see those guys that overdevelop and they just walk around like this all the time. They look ridiculous. And then they never take their shorts off because their legs are only this big. Um, or there's Arnold Schwarzenegger, for example. When he was actually in his prime, uh, he was filming the Conan the Barbarian movie. He actually had to stop working out his chest and his biceps because he couldn't hold a sword. <laughs> he couldn't swing the sword, so he had to stop working out. How silly is that? I'm just jealous. Um, that <laughs> and sometimes in churches, we overemphasize maybe one gift or another or whatever, but there's a diversity of gifts out there that we know that there's, there's every single person here has, has something that they can do to fulfill the calling of God in their life. And so the whole idea that Paul is talking about is not to focus on ourselves and our own giftedness, but to be on the lookout for others. And instead of focusing on what my own gift is or my own talent is, in, in a better way, it's actually, instead of just using your gift, we should think about being a gift to other people. That God has called us to be a gift to other people. In a world of self-esteem and self-promotion and self-focus, Jesus calls us to a different way of living. There's a wonderful woman of faith uh, named Jill Briscoe who says, if you want to be big, learn to be small. Lover of Jesus, servant of all. If you want to do great things for God, if you want to do amazing things, if you want to see his kingdom grow, then learn to be small. If you love Jesus, then be a servant of all. We're called to exercise the gifts given to us with the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit with humility, gentleness, and patience. It's all supposed to be other-focused. Um, and I just want a, a quick story. Pastors get in trouble when we start telling stories, but I want to tell a quick story of my first ever mission that I did as the, the worship team's going to come up and, uh, and close us because otherwise I'll just keep going. I said there's four sermons in here and I'm trying to do one. I'm trying, I promise. Patience, guys, you have to. I, I preached on it. Um, 
But when I, I went uh, as a young adult, I went as a leader on a youth uh, mission trip uh, to Mexico. And it was a little bit of a glorified mission trip or whatever. That's a long thing. But, um, but the, the, the most impactful thing for me was we went to this, um, this it basically was an elderly uh, people retirement home. And not to judge the, the Mexican government too harshly or whatever, but basically the only goal was to keep these people alive. Uh, the, the idea in Mexico, uh, at least in this area, was if you want your family to be well-treated, you better keep them at home and you better love them and care for them at home the best you can. So these people were basically ones that their families had abandoned them. They had nobody that cared about them, nobody that protected them. And so the government just basically put them in this, this building. And it wasn't a prison per se, but going there it sure felt like it. And that there, was, there felt like there was no life and it was just devastating and sad. And I'm not, I don't want to build myself up or anything, but like one of the things that we did was, um, one of the tasks was just shaving some of these men. And I don't, I'm not a touchy-feely guy. I don't like touching people unless I really know them. But uh, just being in the face of this man, and we didn't have proper shaving cream. We had cheap disposable razors, but just soaping up their face and just shaving this man that I couldn't speak Spanish and he didn't speak English. The only word I learned was sorry, so, so that I could keep saying sorry if I cut him. But it just, I was just broken by just, just how abandoned these people were and how there was, there seemed like there was no hope, but Jesus cared about these people. And just in that moment, I just felt so used by God, just doing this simple act of shaving this man that was abandoned and that, that Jesus loved him and just the opportunity that I have. And it wasn't that I was great. It was that Jesus is great and that Jesus called me and brought me to that place so that I could serve this man that one moment. And it, it felt like nothing in the, in the grand scheme of things, but even just that one opportunity to show love, I know makes a difference in people's lives. So wherever you are, wherever you are called to be, however you're, you're gifted, whatever it is, step into what Jesus calls you to do. Be where you are and just be willing to be a gift for others. You see an opportunity to serve, just do it, as Josh said. Just do it. Let me pray for you as the, the worship team uh, leads us in, in responding through worship. And our, our prayer team is gonna be up here if you want someone to pray with you about maybe an opportunity that maybe that God has placed on your heart to serve or you just need somebody to minister to you in prayer. They're here and they're willing to serve you in that way. So join me in prayer. Jesus, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for the calling that you have placed on each one of us. And I pray that every single one of us here and joining us online, Lord, whether we have accepted that call or not yet, that we would, we would say yes to you, Jesus. We would receive and walk in the grace that you have given us and that we would do so with humility and gentleness and patience, Lord. Unite us, bind us together as a church. And may we be a body that is united together, that even in our differences, even in maybe the ways that we would rub each other or even as, as Proverbs would say, iron sharpens iron, that maybe that there would be friction, that, that we would still be united, that we would love one another and that we would love our community and the world around us, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to serve you, Lord. And we just, we pray for your help to walk each and every day like you do, Jesus, with grace and humility.